0: Well, who here enjoys it when their plans fall through? Anyone? Oh, there's one of us. Okay. (laughs) That was a shock. I wasn't ready for it. Um, Well, most of us. uh, Instead, we rather, we strategize, right? We, We organize and we even get ourselves energized to help our goals become reality. And yet, most of us know that sinking feeling when we're the ones who have dropped the ball on a task. We know the sinking feeling when unexpected events pop up and become a roadblock, keeping us from ever grasping our goals. Well, when Allie and I were in Chicago, I interned at um, Pacific Garden Mission. It's a large mission on the south side of Chicago. And for the evening, for all the guys that are staying in the mission uh, that night for overnight shelter, they have to come to a worship gathering. And you know, there'd be a thousand or so homeless gentlemen in the mission, you know, and Pastor Phil, he was one of my pastors, he'd get up there and he's just firing brimstone. You know, he'd just go at it. And then they they would have this worship uh, time of music and they had their own version on the hymns. It was amazing. I mean, it was so much energy and so much fun. Well, one evening I was asked to lead the music with a few of my friends. And we got up there and the first song, we were in the pocket. I mean, we were gelling. The guys were feeling it. It was awesome. And then the second song, the guys start into it. And I realized I can't find my music for the second song. So I'm like digging through. I'm just trying to, you know, keep a smile, like going with it, digging through the paperwork. And then I realize I can't find it, so I just try to ad-lib. I try to go with the chords. And I'm the one leading the song, and I can't remember the words. It's terrible. It was so awful. I mean, it was one of the worst times I've ever led music in my entire life. You watch as the guy's face turned from enjoyment to annoyance as they heard anything but a joyful noise at that moment. And you know, when we have times like this in our lives, I remember the old saying, uh, the, uh, maybe it's not so old, but the axiom that leadership is failing people at a rate that they can handle. And I don't know how much they could handle anymore that evening. But when we think of leadership, when we think of accomplishing goals, and we come to Jesus, we usually come with a question mark. We've been walking through the life of Christ um, this past few weeks, and. We've looked on as he was born into poverty. He was unwanted by the world. And yet, in this moment of birth, a host of angels pop up and say, This is revealing God's glory. When Jesus grows up, he tells us about his kingdom, right? It's an upside down kind of world where those who are the outcast, those who are the unwelcome, are actually invited in and are called blessed. And then we see Jesus what does he do with his power? He's at a wedding, and he shows us that he has the power to give us a new kind of everything, a new kind of joy, a new kind of life, new wine in the midst of old regulations and rules. Well, we finally, we get excited because God has sent his king to the world. The one we're all looking for, the one who's going to make all wrongs right. His kingdom is here, here in his person, Jesus Christ. Then something terribly disturbing happens, right? The worst day imaginable. Jesus dies. But he doesn't just die. He's, he's killed in one of the worst ways possible. All his disciples are unsure at that night on what to do next, asking, what's the deal here? Has God's plan failed? Does Jesus' death prove he's just like you and me? A leadership who failed at a rate that we could handle until he couldn't just in the wrong place at the wrong time, a really nice dude who just happened to die. Now, there's a gentleman by the name of Reza Aslan, and he's the author of a new book. Maybe you've heard of it. It's already um, made it to the New York Times bestseller list, and it's called Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. And in a recent interview, Aslan's asked, Was Jesus a failed Messiah? And his response He did not reestablish the kingdom of David, so he failed. But after his death, his followers redefined the meaning of Messiah. They talked about Jesus' messianic functions taking place not on earth, but rather in heaven. They recast his failure as victory, a victory that would come to fruition at the end of time when he returned to earth. For Aslan, the answer is clear. Jesus couldn't handle the Roman and the Jewish powers of the time. And so his followers had to do some interpretive work with the failed Messiah's death in order to keep this new movement going. This isn't some new idea that Oslan has come up with. I mean, people have wrestled through Jesus' death ever since it happened. I mean, how could God's chosen one die like that? Is this really a part of God's plan or did we miss it? If you read a biography, um, or if you are one who loves to read biographies, you'll notice that few ever devote more than 10% of their pages to the death of their subject. I mean, even if you were to read biographies of men like Martin Luther King Jr. or Mahatma Gandhi, who died violent and politically significant deaths, there's not a lot of margin or a lot of space dedicated to their death. Why? Because the focus is on their lives, not their death. Well, unlike MLK and Gandhi, Jesus' death has always been the climax of God's story. Not an afterthought, not an accident. And in contrast to Aslan's argument, the biblical story puts Jesus' death at the center to his messianic role. Not an accident, not a fail. And it's God's plan of healing a broken world through his dead Messiah, who then raises again. So how we see the death of Jesus, it impacts every single aspect of what it means to be a Christian. If we don't know what to do with the cross of Christ, then we can never follow him with confidence. And so this morning, we're going to see that God doesn't make mistakes, or maybe reaffirm for some of you that God doesn't make mistakes. Jesus did not fail to plan, and this was an accident, but he did plan to die on the worst day of history, and the worst day required the best planning. To see that, we're going to answer two questions with our time together, okay? The first question is, how can we know Jesus' death was a part of the plan? How can we know Jesus' death was a part of the plan? And the second question is, what does it all mean? And to do that, we're going to actually have two parts. We're going to answer the first question, go to a time of communion, and then return to what does it all mean? Well, part one, how can we know Jesus' death was a part of the plan? Well, as we step midway into John 19 this morning, as Beth read for us, it's been a whirlwind up to this point, right? Arrested like a common criminal. He's questioned by religious leaders. He's abandoned by his followers. He's questioned by Pilate. He's rejected by the Jews and now flogged and mocked by Roman soldiers. I mean, Jesus has already lost a lot of blood here. It's amazing that he hasn't bled out yet. And then he's forced to carry his own execution equipment, the cross outside of the city. They don't execute people inside, but outside the city walls. And with Jesus' back already being ripped to shreds by government beatings, the rugged cross digs into his open flesh as he makes his way to a place whose very name screams death, Golgotha, right? The place of the skull. Now, many times we want to picture Jesus on his cross, high up above, (laughs) gawking down, on all of his onlookers, or looking down at all of his gawkers with compassion. But in reality, he was probably only a couple feet off the ground, which makes his bloodshot eyes pretty much right in line with all those who are walking by. It's common that they would put an inscription like the placard Pilate does here, and they would nail it above the crucified as a warning to everybody who's coming in and out of the city not to repeat this criminal's mistakes. So what does Pilate write on Jesus' placard? Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. His crime? He's crucified for who he is. Not even necessarily what he's done. And for Pilate, his motives for writing this weren't to show that he'd finally chosen to follow this Jesus, but it was an act of revenge. He knew it was going to tick off the chief priests, so here's my shot. They twisted his arm to make, them cruci- make him crucify Jesus. And now he's going to get his last shot. And you see this petty power grabbing. But even here, God had this hour in his hands. Not the world. The king of the, bo- the world who was born in an animal trough, he's friends of the riffraff, despised by religious leaders, yet very God of very God now has his bloody coronation. Behold, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. Here is your king. Here is your king. It's hard to imagine that his whole life was leading up to this one moment. But it was. And Jesus' goal in life wasn't to go looking for his 15 minutes of fame, right? He wasn't trying to get on American Idol. But rather, it was counting down to an hour of ridicule, which can feel like that for some on American Idol. And this hour, it had to come. It had to come. This hour, specifically this language of an hour, it, it had consumed his thoughts, his dreams, his purposes, his days. And when we see this in his very first miracle. We saw it last week. In John chapter 2, Jesus and his family, his relatives, you know, and his disciples are invited to a wedding. And his mom comes up to him and says, Hey Jesus, the wine has run dry. You know, insinuating, why don't you do something about this, Jesus? And what does he say in response? Dear woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Later in Jesus' story, both in John chapter 7 verse 30 and John chapter 8 verse 20, we see two occurrences where people come to try to abuse and arrest Jesus. But they can't. Why? We could say Jesus was lucky. But scripture says his hour had not yet come. They weren't in control. The worst day, it required the best planning. And God was guiding the ticking clock of Jesus' death, not the world. Now Jesus knew why he'd come. And he knew what it meant to be the king. He knew he must die. And in John chapter 12, verse 27 Jesus talks of this hour once again with resolve. He says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And The night before his death, in John chapter 13, we read Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. And in John chapter 16, he says, during this hour, His disciples, all those who had loved Him, who had followed Him, would scatter, and He would be left alone, isolated. But He knew it was coming, and for Him, it wasn't a tragedy. It was a time of glory, very antithetical to our perspective. But we see this in John 17, verse 1, Jesus, the Son of God, talking to the Heavenly Father, our Father, because of Christ, praying, Father, the hour Has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. This hour of shame from the world's perspective will be an hour of glory to God. It's here, just outside the city, that he's nailed to his cross his unlikely throne. Instead of honorable warriors seated to his right and left, as any king would have, he has two common criminals, one to his right, one to his left. One Who abuses him with his very speech, degrading him as a Messiah, where the other submits to Jesus. It was this hour, for this hour he came, it was in this hour he died, it was through this hour he's glorified. And while Jesus is hanging naked on a cross, we see in the following verses, twenty-three through twenty-seven, the Roman soldiers are fighting over the clothes that they confiscated or they stole. They split up most of it except for this tunic. And they cast lots, which is kind of like rolling the dice in our perspective, hoping to get the lucky number. Yahtzee, I get the tunic. Um, But who cares about this? Like when you're reading the story, you think, okay, we're watching these guards cast lots for a tunic. Why on earth does John include this petty little detail? It's because he wants us to know that Jesus' crucifixion was even bigger than the testimony of just Jesus himself talking about the hour. He wants us to know that the worst day required the best planning, even in the little details, even backstage behind the cross. All of Scripture was pointing to this one moment, and the Scripture had to be fulfilled. If we look throughout Jesus' life, John makes a clear connection that every word of God that he's spoken to his people throughout history has ultimately been pointing us to Jesus. As we've been reading through Open Here together, we could start all the way back, you know, at the dawn of creation when it fell into chaos. Even there in Genesis 3.15, we hear these rumors, a promise of an ultimate victory over evil that has entered the world. But there will still be bloodshed and there will still be pain in the victory talking to the serpent who tempted the first woman, Eve, to abandon God. God says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head, and you shall crush his heel. It is not without pain. It is not without loss. And God was pointing forward to the one we now look back to if we were to journey just through the gospel of John i mean John helps make all of these connections for us or not all of them but quite a few and when jesus did many signs and wonders before the people and he's speaking to them about the truth of god they still don't believe but this wasn't a surprise to jesus god had spoken about this long ago and in john 12 this disbelief in jesus it's spoken of by the prophet isaiah look if you have your bibles to john chapter 12 verse 37 Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that, this is a key marker, why? So that the word by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. In John 13, We see that Psalm 41 was ultimately pointing us to Jesus' portrayal. In John 15, we see that Psalm 35 was ultimately revealing that Jesus would be betrayed and hated. In John 18, we see his crucifixion and his same-day burial are a fulfillment of Deuteronomy 21, the casting of lots we just talked about, the fulfillment of Psalm 22. His cry, I thirst, echoes Psalm 69. The fact that none of his bones are broken points us to Psalm 34 and when his side is pierced to ensure that he's totally dead anyone who knows Zechariah, when he says in chapter 12 verse 10 and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy when they look on me on him whom they have pierced they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn John wants us to make the connection. All of Scripture has been pointing to our grand Savior, Jesus Christ. There's just too much alignment, too many connections for us to miss the fact that all of history is pointing to Jesus. You know, John says at the very outset of his book, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And a little later in verse 14 of chapter 1, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is Jesus. Very God. A very God. The living word who is outside of time, who created time, has entered time for a time. And the written word has been pointing towards him all of time. The scripture had to be fulfilled. And when we return to these last three verses, 28 through 30 for our time this morning. In John 19, we see that Jesus has fulfilled his call and he knows it. The plan, it had to be finished. It had to be enacted and it had to be finished. And he had to finish it. Ironically, in these verses, the one who made gallons of wine for a wedding party, who had spoken of living water that quenches our thirst forever, is found dying with a swollen tongue and the smell of spoiled vinegar on his beard. It's now at the close of his work. He shouts a victory cry from the cross, It is finished! And he dies. John wants us to know that every part of Jesus' passion was not only in line with the Father's plan, but a consequence of the Son's direct obedience. Jesus was a success. He wasn't a failure. He'd planned to be seen as a failure by most of the world and to take upon himself the failures of the world, but he'd finished his task. The plan had to be finished, and he finished it perfectly. You know, John 1.1, 1, 1, we hear the echoes of Genesis 1.1 1, 1, with the words, in the beginning. In the beginning, God created, right? In Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. And John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. And when we see John 19, verse 30, where Jesus cries, it is finished, we hear the echoes of Genesis 2, where God says creation is finished. Well, ever since the fall of creation, new creation has been needed new work of restoration and rescue has been crying out from the very soil. A broken world could only be made whole through the death of Jesus, and it is finished. Why his death? Because only Jesus could pay the cosmic debt that all humanity owes God because of our rebellion against him. His unique nature, being very God, allows him to pay the cosmic realities of this debt. Being fully human, allows him to pay for humanity's sin. The plan had to be finished and his faithfulness to follow through make him worthy of honor and praise and allegiance. And we know it worked. Really, if it ended there, we would have questions. But we know it worked because he didn't stay dead. His resurrection, as we're going to look at next week, is God's stamp of approval on Jesus' finished work of redemption on the cross. It has been finished. And so that everyone knows Jesus does not remain in the grave, but God raises him from the dead. And in the shadow of his looming death, looking forward to the cross, Jesus gave his disciples, you and me, a special way to look back at the cross. This is meant to be a fabric of our gathering together as a community of believers. He gave us a meal. The Lord's Last Supper, it points us to a regular communion with God and one another around a table. And it's with this common bread and juice we remember the hour of ridicule. It's through broken bread we remember how the scriptures were fulfilled in his broken body for us. It is in the poor juice that we remember how the plan was finished and the pouring out of his blood for the forgiveness of sins. Today, it's a little different rhythm, as I said earlier. And after we're done taking communion, we're going to return to the cross to answer, what does it all mean? Yeah, we can see how Jesus' death was a part of the plan. It was a part of the very hour Scripture was foretelling and the plan had to be finished in Jesus. But what does it all mean? But first, we're going to slow down and sit and remember the worst day the world has ever known. During this time, the worship team is going to come and sing O Sacred Head Now Wounded and guide us in singing it together. So let us take a moment to reflect on the fact that God has planned the cross of Jesus and all of its gory details for us. Each week, before we receive communion, we hear from the Apostle Paul, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. But what exactly are we proclaiming when we're proclaiming His death? And that leads us to part two. What does all this mean? Whether you've been a Christian for years or you're rediscovering your faith afresh, we tend to ask the question, what does all this mean? And we may be able to say that Jesus wasn't a failed Messiah, but how can we say that his death was glorious? Why is this a part of the plan? I mean, why would all Scripture point to this moment? And while the bread is still stuck in your teeth and the juice is still lingering on your lips, I just want to talk about three lingering realities of the cross. First, The cross means God's love never fails. Each one of us, we have a tendency to question God's love. It's the root of the very first sin, actually, questioning God's character of being a loving creator. And it still is for every sin after it. We hear it in questions that we ask God, like, God, do you see what's happening here? Because if you did, it would be different. God, do you even care? God, what, what's taking so long? God, do you really love me? But in the cross, the question of God's love for us has forever been answered. In, letter the, in, the, in the letter to the church at Rome, the Apostle Paul, he reminds us, and we even confessed it this morning in our call to worship. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him Graciously give us all things, for I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, whatever is pressing you down, whatever you're wrestling through, nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And knowing all this, God the Father, he still planned to send Jesus for you before the foundations of the world were laid. And the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was willing to carry it out. He knows you better than you know yourself. And he still went through with it. (laughs) It which is really comforting. So learn to delight in his love. Not doubt it. Run to his arms rather than question their strength. Let the joy of His unconditional love, free you from trying to justify your existence. You exist because God loves you, out of the very core of love, amidst the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, creation was born. Not because He needs us, but because He very much desired more objects to love. And the cross is the ultimate proof of that. So accept his love given to you through Jesus when we proclaim him as Lord and Savior of our life. We need to sit in it. We need to soak in it. We need to cling to it because delight in his love is the secret to ever delighting in this life and the life to come. Secondly, the cross means God's salvation. It never falls short. It's finished means exactly that, that it is finished. What you were, who you were, what you did, it deserves punishment. I'm not going to say it doesn't. And someone has to pay, but it has been paid for you if you receive it as a gift. You don't have to pay for it anymore. You can't pay for it. It's as if somebody paid off your mortgage and you're still sending in checks. It's been paid. Stop trying to pay it off. Forgiveness is real and justice has been satisfied on your behalf in Christ if we bow before Him and embrace Him as our Savior and our Lord. There are times when we pretend it isn't finished, when we say things like, I just don't think I can forgive myself. And we're harder on ourselves than God is on us. Or we try to clean up ourselves for God or for others around us and we become this hypocritical facade. Everything's always fine. We always have smiles. When inside we have fear and we have anger at the world and the way life is working out and what God hasn't done for us. No one knows really the pain you're going through because you hide it from everyone and you try to hide it from God. We think sometimes that we're wrestling through something that not even God can save us from. Stop running. Stop hiding. Stop beating yourself up. Stop trying to be your own savior and let God save you from yourself, from your fears, your outlandish expectations on your own life. God sent Jesus because he knew you couldn't do it. So stop thinking you're smarter than him or that he had it wrong. If we could do it ourselves, then Jesus did waste his life and John 1st John chapter 1 verse 9 God gives us our response he says if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us to wash us clean from all unrighteousness he can through Jesus so rest in his work rest in what he has done for you you know i was at a conference a couple of weeks ago and for the CCDA, the Christian Community Development Association, where you go into developing urban neighborhoods and seek uh, to to empower those who are indigenous leaders to developing their city towards flourishing. You know, they had one speaker. She caught me off guard, and she was just talking about burnout. And she was sitting there, and she goes, I just want to do something. You know, just take—we're going to take two minutes, and we're just all going to be quiet. And I just— some of you are going a million miles a minute, and that pretty much describes everybody in this room. Um, and sometimes you just rush so much that you never take time to listen. So I want to take two minutes, just to allow God to to speak to you. You know, I was like, okay, here we go. What's going to happen? And as soon as it got quiet, I started preoccupying my mind with things. It's like, oh, that's a nice screen. Oh, that's pretty cool shoes. Man, mean, I wonder where he got those. Um, And I said, no, no, no. She asked us to be quiet, you know. So I quiet my heart. And then all of a sudden, I wrote it on a sticky note. Um, I just heard God say, lay it down. Lay it down. And I just started bawling my eyes out. I looked like a, a goofball sitting there, you know. My shirt was just drenched with tears. I remember calling Allie that night and telling her, and I was just trying to carry so much. I was trying to be my own savior. I was trying to be it, whatever it was. I was trying to be the ideal pastor, you know? Um, And each time I would think of something, I would say, Jesus, but what about this? Well, lay it down. Lay it down. Lay it down. And I'm just bawling, going through my Rolodex, like whoever has those anymore, you know, of ideas of things that I'm carrying and reminded that Jesus had already carried those burdens to the cross. So, why don't we just leave him there and rest in his work, right? Rest in his work. Whatever you're carrying, leave it with Christ. Well, thirdly, the cross means God's plan never goes wrong. Never goes wrong. Which is only good news if the first two are true, quite frankly. And when we look at the day of the cross, we see some pretty bad news. There's no worse day than this in history. Jesus is dead. There's no doubt about it. To say that Jesus didn't die is not what the gospels portray. He is dead. He's pierced in the side and blood and water come out because of the sack around the heart and so on. But, but there is good news. There's no worse day than this. Because now Jesus is alive and will never die again. No matter how bad your day has gone, it may feel like the end of the world, but it can't get worse than the day that Jesus died. Because of Jesus' death, even on your worst day, there's always hope that God's plan never goes wrong. You know, in the book of Acts, Peter, he's telling this crowd of people that are gathered around because they've heard about the crucified Messiah, Jesus, But Peter's been with the resurrected Jesus for 40 or so days. And he pronounces to them, he says, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Nothing surprises God. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Think of your worst moments in life. Now think of your greatest moments in life. He knew about them all, and they didn't take him by surprise. Because of Jesus, we can trust in his plan. God in Christ defeated death with death in its own game. And we know, as Paul says in Romans 8, that for those who love God, it's a key marker there, all things work together for good. We could say eventually. For those who are called according to His purpose. It is no longer a hopeless case for those who are in Christ. Thank God for the gospel. Thank God for Jesus that he is not a leader who fails us at a rate that we can handle, <laughs> but he surpasses our expectations and calls us to delight in his love, rest in his work, and trust in his plan. This, the power of the cross, son of God slain for us. What a love, what a cost. We stand forgiven at the cross. Would you please stand as we sing these words together about the great paradox of power, the cross of Jesus. Amen.